Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz pianist, composer, and arranger Bill O'Connell. He grew up in New York and started playing the piano when he was very young, a calling that he knew would lead to a career in music. And with his Latin All-Stars, he just released a 2016 CD called Heartbeat, and he stays very active on the jazz faculty at Rutgers University. Over his long and storied jazz existence, he has played with legends like Mongo, Santa Maria, Sonny Rollins, Chet Baker, and Astru Gilberto. He spoke openly about his career and what he tries to give his students these days, why he loves jazz, and much more. So please, dig this interview, my friends. All right, Joe, you are one on-time guy. You know what? That's what I try to do. <laughs> That's a good thing. It's a good yes. thing. Hey, thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. No problem. And I'm going to go ahead and start off here. I know that you're pretty clear on your website about activity, but from your own words, give me an idea, an overview of what's going on in your life lately. Well, you know, I teach at Rutgers. That's a decent part of my life. I mean, the other pieces, you know, my life is three. If I've always looked at my professional life anyway as, as sort of three areas. One is teaching, which I've always done, whether it be uh, in an institution like Rutgers or privately, it's, and then composing and arranging, and then performing. So basically, I my mind is consumed with all three areas, whether it's like, for example, with Rutgers, I run the Afro-Cuban department, is, uh, the Afro-Cuban uh or African, we call the Afro-Caribbean Ensemble. So I write and arrange for that, as well as teaching private piano students. In terms of playing, you know, I guess you're aware of my latest record, Heartbeat, on the Savant label. So I'm trying to get out there and support that CD with, with that band. And, and then I'm always thinking about the next project, or the next five projects. <laughs> So, I'm, uh, you know, so I'm I'm always writing writing tunes. I've, I've been writing music all my life, and I, so I was more of a writer in the beginning. And then I kind of said, well, I'm not just going to sit in a room and write my whole life. I, I'm not going to be happy doing that. So I really made it a point to develop my chops and become a writer and a player too. So uh, that's pretty much how it works, and, and to varying degrees, each one takes over more than the other, depending upon what's happening. Let me ask you this, since you brought it up, and I was, that was my next part here. Talk to me about Heartbeat. How do you feel about this in the afterglow, and what went into making this album? You know, listen, I, I, I generally put out records that I like, so this to me is a special record. I, I like the depth of it. I feel like there's a lot of uh, different colors, you know, by me using the bata drums on a few tracks, uh, the combination of... Uh, with Steve Slagle playing flute, alto, and soprano with the trombone. And, you know, it's my never-ending quest to sort of stretch out the Latin jazz idiom a little bit. And also using Melva Santa on some vocals. This is the first time I've used a vocalist, uh, even though she's not singing. Well, she's singing a few lyrics, but for the most part used as a uh, another instrument to blend in with the horns. You know, so there's a lot kind of going on with this, as well as my natural bent towards arranging and uh, you know, playing. So I, I yeah, I'm I'm really happy with this record. <laughs> to get to get you know, to make it short and sweet. Let me ask you this. I'm gonna go back to the beginning of your life growing up in New York. How did you what was your childhood like to give you a love of music and more specifically jazz? Uh you know that's 
That's a good question. Well, I had, you know, music was, was always in my family. My uncle is, was my first teacher. He's a classical guy, although he had an interest in jazz. So I studied with him as a kid. Uh, my grandfather, you know, he played Dixieland records for me. You know, and that, that sort of had some subliminal thing. They'd always be singing around the piano on Sundays with the family. You know, so that was that was always going on. But, you know, there was a time I remember very vividly, you know, I was like nine or ten, and I'd been taking piano lessons for a long time. And, you know, I was like any other kid, really. I, I wanted to kind of go out and play baseball across the street instead of practicing piano. And my mother said to me, you know, Bill, you don't have to do this. You don't have to take piano lessons. When she said that, I can remember and I can still feel it. It was a very emotional moment and that I wasn't prepared for it. That, you know, almost tears welled up in my eyes. I said, what? My life without piano? My life without music? What are you talking about? Even though I was maybe resistant to practicing at that time, <laughs> you know, I kind of realized at that point that it really meant so much to me, you know, and so at that time then I got into writing and you know I was always I was always fascinated by writing I'd look at a piece of music and I would say well why did he do that why didn't he do this why didn't it go this way you know uh so you know I started writing something and I was into you know I was I was not a jazz guy I was a, you know I grew up regular you know rock and roll or you know whatever Grateful Dead Mothers of Invention uh you know, and that kind of thing. And then then I heard in my teens, I heard A Love Supreme, and I heard, I think it was Miles, My Funny Valentine or something. Somebody gave me those uh, LPs. And the first time I heard A Love Supreme, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. It was too much. Then uh, Miles, I uh, sort of had an immediate connection to, but then I put A Love Supreme on it six months later, and it made all the sense in the world to me, even though I had no idea how to, you know, do that sort of thing. Then I went on to study some composition and moved to New York. You know, and New York is really where everything happened for me. Right on. Well, and then you went to the uh, Oberlin Conservatory of Music. What was that experience right. like? It was good. It was good. Uh, you know, I, I studied composition there, but they really didn't have much of a jazz thing going on. So, you know, uh, but that was okay. In those days, it was very different. You didn't have, like, jazz programs at all the colleges, like we have at Rutgers, and every, just about every college has a jazz component now. You know, it was good for a certain thing, but I kind of realized that after a while, one of the things was my, my roommate there had a really strong jazz record collection that he brought with me and that was almost as influential as as his college itself because we'd listen to these train records and miles records and wear them out uh while we were doing the other thing you know some of the classical stuff so it was good but then i decided i had to come to new york and really get into the scene you know uh studied with a great pianist a guy named richie byrack uh, back in the day and uh took off from there well, so 1970s New York City, being a musician, that had to be kind of a magical time to be there and to get your feet wet. Uh, it was an interesting time because so much was going on. The straight-ahead jazz world was happening, but it was, you know, post-bop, and we're all trying to stretch things, and uh, the electric stuff was happening. 
you know, really more for pianists with a rose. Since then, really, they were starting to hit. You know, I remember playing with Mongo Santa Maria. We actually loaded a rose into the, you know, took it to the airport. Put it on a plane. How about that? That's, that's, <laughs> cool. that's some real dedication. <laughs> if, if anyone knows how heavy a Fender Rhodes is. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, there was a lot going on. So the, the, it was, and, and of course, the Latin scene, you know, because before I started making uh, a living as a jazz player, I got into the Latin scene. And I was playing some salsa gigs in New York, as well as doing jazz stuff. But it was kind of a combination, which is still kind of my life. But, you know, so all those things were happening. Uh, a lot of the people I met in those days, a lot of great, you know, well, we were all young. Alex Foster, some of the pianists, Michael Wolf, uh, Armin Dinelli and Mark Soskin. We were all like uh, Jim McNeely. We were all coming up together around that time. Andy Laverne's another guy. Uh, you know, so we were all trying to find our way in the midst of this, I, you know, all all this kind of music going on. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a great time, actually. What is always, in the very beginning, what interests you about the Latin flavor of jazz? Why has that been a lifelong pursuit for you? Well... I guess I felt, I feel I have something to say in it. That's one thing. You know, as a musician, I think part of your job, or at least as a jazz musician, so much of it is finding out what you like and what turns you on. You know, because people can show you this and show you that, but you have to decide that, hey, man, this is something I really want to dive into. My first Latin experience was a trumpet player. A friend of mine was playing in a salsa band in the basement that rehearsed in a basement in, in the Bushwick section of Brooklyn, which at the time was a little, you know, a little interesting to run in and go down there and rehearse. But, of course, everything's coming up now in New York. Every every place is, you know, much safer. But so I went down there and happened they happened to have a great bass player who taught me enough to get through the Latin part of the gig. And they loved the way I played over everything because my jazz chops could and, you know, stretch the music out. And they were all like, wow. You know, so I was cool as long as I could keep keep up with the rhythm section. I mean, the point is, that music was vital. It was, to me anyway, it was, had you know, the pulse, the rhythm, everything at all excited me as much as playing with a great jazz rhythm section. So that was the beginning. So for a few years, I played in salsa bands and, did that sort of thing around New York, which was a vital scene. The Latino people, they came out and they supported the music, you know, dancing and everything like that. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was a good training ground in a way. And then I got the gig with Mongo Santa Maria, did that for a couple of years. And then I was on my way, but I think the rhythmic complexity and the swing just really grabbed me. What what did you learn from Mongo? That had to be a huge learning experience for you. Yeah, it was it was great. You know, I was always intrigued by Mongo's gig because I, you know, some of the people that I admired had gone through it. I know, you know, Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea had both gone through Mongo's band, amongst many other great musicians. I think the thing that that I got mostly with Mongo and it, Mongo, it was a whole band too. The, the late great drummer uh, Steve Berrios. Who has played on a, who played on a couple of my 
CDs over the years, as well as I, I worked with him with the Ford Apache Band in the 90s, uh, Jerry Gonzalez and the Ford Apache Band. Uh, he was great, too. You know, almost to me, Mongo and Steve Berrios were just as serious musicians uh, on a percussive level. You know, with Mongo, I think I, because we were playing every night, you know, we'd go out to the West Coast and we'd do a month, and we'd, we'd work fairly steadily. I really got to hear how the percussion links up how as I got I got to a point where I wasn't just so worried about keeping my part together and started to understand the music as a whole better and could listen to how everybody links up and hear what each instrument is doing and to really uh, internalize the groove more and you know that kind of experience is invaluable that's you know because you can teach somebody a groove but then when you play it every night and you and you really get it inside you well, that's, uh, that's a whole other level. Absolutely. Well, and then you also share the stage with, with luminaries like Sonny Rollins and Chet Baker and Dr. Barbieri. What did you learn from them, being around people that had so much clout in the music world? Uh, I think, you know, you, anytime you can get a chance to play with some of those legends, you know, it's, it's a, it's kind of a blessing. The, um, I mean, each one was was really different. I'd say with Chet, you know, there's a certain sensitivity in what he did. Um, and also, surprisingly, you wouldn't think of it, but, you know, I, to me, I call it the closest I ever got to playing with Miles. Uh, he, he also was kind of, you, you wouldn't think of it, but some nights he was ferocious on the trumpet. I mean, he could just rip off lines that would just blow you away. It's not a part that's emphasized that people think about with Chet, but I certainly remember that, and I remember being inspired by, you know, the way he put lines together to come home and practice and try to get some of that, you know, to try to understand or, you know, emulate that kind of, I don't know, the length of line, whatever. Uh, with Sonny, I think, you know, it's just, a sense of exploration and also a sense of, you know, really, you know, Sonny also had a, has, has a great sense of humor and that comes out in his music. You know, he'll, he'll be playing all kinds of crazy extrapolations and then he'll go, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, but in the middle of it. And I thought, wow, that's great. You know, just in terms of communicating to people, you know, to have that, you know, they play the like the most serious, deepest music, and then you know, okay, I'm going to lighten it up for a minute for everybody <laughs> out there. You know, but a great experience. And Gato, you know, who just passed away recently. You know, I think the thing with Gato was his ability to play a melody. You know, he just could really sing a melody, and that's that. that you know, that's something he learned from him. Let me ask you this: You've won awards throughout your career. You're a four-time recipient of the Jazz Writer of the Year. What award did you receive that really surprised you? Not your favorite award, but just something you were like, I didn't expect that. Any award. Yeah. I mean, I can't say it's, it's uh, you know, those. I, I think those things are, are, are nice. You know, I, I can't think of anything specifically. I will say this. It's, it's nice when you recognize whatever award you get. You know, it's everybody does it, and, and the reason you do this is not, to get an award is not to, 
it's not even for recognition. I think you, you, you play this music, you're, you're into this life because you love it and because you have to do it. So I think any time anyone recognizes you, whether it's a, an award, a great review or something, or you feel like somebody really connects and understands what you're trying to do musically, uh, that's a beautiful thing. You had mentioned some teachers that have taught you throughout your career, so I want to ask you this. Is there any specific advice or wisdom that you receive that you still think about to this day? I have specific advice and wisdom sometimes for <laughs> for for people after having done this for 40-plus uh, years. I think, you know, teachers can be really important. You know, I, I mentioned... Uh, I mean, I mentioned Richie Byrack when I got to New York. You know, people don't know him as well, and maybe his legacy is more as a teacher. He's been teaching in Leipzig uh, for years in Germany. A great player recorded on ECM back in the day, and, uh, you know, maybe maybe not as known as well as he should be, but really important to me and a lot, and a lot of other people uh, as a as a teacher. I think, you know, I, I think, you know, ultimately, teachers are great. Ultimately, we all have to kind of figure it out our, ourselves, and a teacher can be a great guide. I think, you know, just to, to kind of impart a little bit of what I, you know, what comes to mind when you ask that question for me, like, because I've done so much teaching and I have my students at Rutgers, you know, I think, I think part of it is to really just do what you feel you know, to play what you feel. I don't know if anyone ever told me that. I kind of figured that out. But uh, but that's an important, that's, you know, there's really no reason to play anything unless you have your heart and soul behind it 100%. So let me ask you this. You have played with what the world would consider bonafide legends and jazz heroes. So I want to know, who are your jazz heroes? Who are my jazz heroes? Well, I think, uh, um, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, pianists, it would be the, you know, I'd call the the great four, Chick Corea, Keith Jarrett, uh, Herbie Hancock, and McCoy Tyner. To me, they're the, they're the guys who are, you know, the modern jazz masters. Uh, doesn't mean that there aren't, as you know, many, many other great players there are, you know, and, and in some ways I would throw Bill Evans and, and Thelonious Monk in there in a different different kind of category. In terms of other instrumentalists, you know, Coltrane and uh Miles. How can you go wrong with that as as inspirations for me to to, to play this music? But uh as a writer, you know, I certainly love Wayne Shorter's writing, but someone else who isn't quite mentioned as often as uh, he should be, maybe somebody like Claire Fisher. I think Claire Fisher is great, and I, you know, I, I love his music and his whole harmonic sense, so those are some of the names that, that come to mind. Let me wrap up the nostalgia of that last question and ask you this. If you could go back in time and witness any jazz musician live, where would you go and who would you want to see? It would probably be that Miles Davis quartet with Herbie, Tony Williams, Ron Carter, and uh, or quintet with Wayne and Wayne Shorter, or yeah, or George George Coleman. <laughs> he was he was serious too. You know, I remember once in my because that I can't you know in my teens, 
I never heard that band live. I heard Miles, you know, later in his electric period. Often, you know, I'd be playing a jazz festival and Miles would be out there too. So, so I heard Miles play, but with that band, I, I remember as a teenager, I was going in to see them. I don't know, as a teen, I don't know how I was going to get in the club, but, but I went, you know, and, and I remember getting to the door of the club and there was just a sign that said, Miles has postponed this evening. Ah, uh, bummer. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was my shot. So I would probably go back to that early 60s Miles uh, classic quintet and, you know, just hang out and listen to those guys. Yeah, that would be beautiful. Let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? You know, as I said, I, I really came at the music from a compositional point of view. So when I was doing, when I was thinking about being just a classical, kind of modern classical composer, something was missing for me. Uh, and I also remember talking to other students of my, or, you know, other students who were my contemporaries. I remember talking to one guy in particular, and, and he, we were talking about writing, and I said, well, I don't know. You know, you, you get an idea, and I feel like it can go this way, or it can go that way, or maybe in another day it'll go this way. Or You know, there are a lot of possibilities. And, and I remember him saying, well, no, I think there's one way that's the best way. And I, now I can see that I, I was really a jazz musician back then. You know, it wasn't one way. No, today is one day, and tomorrow is another day, and I'm going to maybe steer off in this direction. Yeah. Uh, so that was part of it, and also, I think I needed the groove. I needed the the, the rhythmic complexity and the harmonic complexity, and I needed I don't know more earth in my music. I needed more a little more melody, a little more something, a little you know I, more than modern classical at, at that time seemed to offer me. I needed. I need a little more something down to earth. So I, I don't know. Some, I think that's why. And the music's open. This music has everything for me. It's got groove. It's got intellectual sophistication and complexity. And it swings. Uh, when it's right, it swings. It's uh, something off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I dig it. Let me ask you this. In your life of being a musician, what's the nicest thing that either a fan or a fellow musician has ever said to you? Well, let's see. I mean, you know, I think anytime somebody just comes up to you and says, wow, man, you you just, you played great or, um, I mean, just getting some acknowledgement uh, for what I'm doing from some of the you know, some of the greats I had worked with means a lot. I mean, somebody comes up and asks you for your autograph. That's nice. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, any, I, it, it, listen, kind of like what I said before, any any acknowledgement, I, I can't think of one thing. I certainly, there have been plenty of times when people come up after you play and, and they just say, wow, it's, you know, and, and, that's, and that's a nice feeling. That's kind of why we do it. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's I sit in my room here and I think about arrangements and everything. But when you get it out there, there is an audience. And the audience does matter a lot, you know, and which is another thing we can talk about, you know, the state of of developing and enlarging the jazz audience, you know, because we, we need that audience and we need to feed off that because that has a big part to do with the music. So it's, you know, it's a great thing when, when audience and player and, and the band is all like in one, you know, when you play in a ballad, it's, say at the Blue Note in New York and you can hear a pin drop 
you know, and you have that kind of sensitivity going on. I mean, that's it's a great feeling. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Let me ask you this: Everybody's got their version of who you are. Your family, your friends, your business associates, your fans. But who do you personally think you are? <laughs> who am I? Who am I? That is the question. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that changes every day. I mean. You know, I got this professional life, but I also have a family. I have four kids. Uh, just became a grandfather, a little boy who's going to turn one in May. Uh, I do believe and hope, uh, you know, I mean, music is, is what I do. Music is what I love. But there's a lot more to me than that. You know, yeah. uh, I've been married for 26, 27 years, somewhere in that zone. And, and I feel totally lucky to, that she's put up with me and... You know, all the kids are great and wonderful. So, you know, that, you know, music is great. In some ways, that stuff, you know, is, is really the important stuff in life. I mean, everything is important and everything matters. But, you know, who am I? I am many things. I am father, grandfather. I am musician. I am teacher. I am composer. I am all these things. Hopefully, and I, hopefully I'm doing them all the best I can. Right on. Final question. When... The world sits back in their easy chair and peels back the layers, the proverbial layers of jazz history, and they come across your name. What would you like people to remember your lifelong dedication to jazz to be? You know, I would like them to hear that I was part of this great tradition. I would like them to hear that I was stretching this and always searching for maybe a little more uh, in this, bringing my own point of view to the music. You know, and I would like them to hear a musician that is and was making a very honest musical statement. That's perfect, man. Bill, thank you for taking some time and giving me your story today, man. I appreciate it. No problem, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Bill for his warmth, his music, and all those tales. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.